Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mexig's Clinical Leaders podcast series. My name is Jack. And hi, my name is Will. We're delighted to welcome our guest today, Dr. Simon Judkins. Dr. Judkins is an experienced emergency physician and the past president of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. He currently works at the Austin and also in Echuca. Dr. Judkins has invested in bringing attention to the worsening crises of access blocking and overcrowding in Australia's emergency departments. This has been a well-publicised issue, often overflowing into the mainstream media, and is an issue that has only been exacerbated with the ongoing COVID outbreaks over the past year. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Dr. Judkins. No worries. From your experience, would you mind outlining the problem of overcrowding and demand-supply mismatch that you've observed within the ED and the broader health system? And how does this relate to a notion of surge capacity that we often hear quoted in the media? Uh, thanks, Phyllis, and look, um, thanks so much for inviting me to have this chat with you today. So, um, yeah, so first of all, ED, you know, access block and overcrowding is something that we've been dealing with in the emergency medicine community and um, uh, or highlighting the issues around access block and overcrowding for, you know, going back for a, a well over a decade. And I've actually just finished reviewing a book that the College of, for Emergency Medicine are putting out, 35 years of the college history. Um, and it reminds us that but over a decade ago that the um, ASIM uh, had a national summit on access block and overcrowding, inviting state ministers and health ministers to and health administrators to discuss the challenges and issues around access block and overcrowding in emergency departments and really focusing on the issues around delayed care and the impacts that has on patient morbidity and patient mortality. And so, so this issue um, has been highlighted by not only the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, but you, you see you know, similar issues happening in certainly in the UK, Canada, uh, most countries where they've got um, developed emergency medical systems, we're seeing access and overcrowding in emergency departments as a significant problem. And, and the reason it's a, you know, we are strongly, continue to strongly advocate around it is that there is an association with overcrowding in emergency departments and prolonged stays in emergency departments impacting patient mortality. In fact, a recent study that was um, undertaken by uh, New Zealand emergency medicine colleagues, Dr. Jones over in New Zealand, uh, Professor Jones, he uh, highlighted that if a patient turns up to an emergency department where 10% of the beds are occupied by patients who are waiting admission, who have been there for longer than eight hours, the mortality for all other patients who turn up or mortality, morbidity for patients turn up into that environment just starts to exponentially increase. And so coming into an environment where you actually already have delays to seeing clinicians, delays of patients moving through the system starts to impact patient mortality very early. Um, sadly, the way the health system is um, running at the moment is we're finding those very high levels of access block in almost every emergency department in sort of urban and metro environments and reaching out into regional areas. So all of our emergency departments have patients waiting in them for admission for a very long period of time. And you know, we've had examples of, particularly in our mental health cohort of patients, of patients spending up to three and four days in emergency departments waiting for inpatient care. So you can imagine the impacts that has on um, on patient outcomes, but also, you know, on the staff uh, looking after those patients and the family of those patients. So the knock-on effects are, are significant. And I suppose coming into the COVID environment, that was one of the things that uh, emergency clinicians were very, very uh, wary of. And I recall when uh, COVID first started to have the impacts in, in the Australian uh, and New Zealand environments, the 
chief medical officer of Australia at the time uh, commented that, you know, Australia's health system will cope because we can just bring on our our surge capacity or engage our surge capacity with the hospital system. And we commented at the time that there really is no surge capacity. You know, if you're operating a healthcare system that has somewhere between 95 and 100% of its beds occupied most of the time, the only way to create surge capacity is to delay care for other patient groups. And so we've seen things like cancellations of elective surgery across the board, delays to, you know, um, sort of elective admissions to work patients up for cancers and those sorts of things. So, you know, our surge capacity in the system relied on really doctors, nurses and healthcare providers within that system just working harder and longer hours and unfortunately also delaying care for other patient groups. And as I said, the cancellation of elective surgery is a prime example of that. So it sounds really that um, I guess this issue is A, not really a new one and also not necessarily localised to our health system. And we've spoken how, how it certainly increases the mortality of, you know, all in ED and there's a study showing that. What other flow-on effects do you see overcrowding having within the broader community as well? Um, I, I want to think the overcrowding, first of all, the, 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 the greatest impact is the fact that um, those people who require acute health care, you know, patients putting with strokes, STEMIs, trauma, uh, turning up to that system do have significant delays to care. And so that's the most immediate concern. But I think the flow on effects back into the community is that, you know, for example, patients who are waiting for elective surgery, there's essentially, you know, I suppose there's access block to elective surgery and overcrowding of elective surgical lists as well. So, you know, we do find that those patients who may be on the list for, you know, to get their cholecystectomy done, um, if you're in a system that is, is pushing the limits, that eventually we see a lot of patients who then turn up to the emergency department because their healthcare, their condition has deteriorated. And so, you know, they go from being an elective procedure to an emergency procedure. Um, we see the impacts of ambulance ramping on, you know, if anybody looks at the headlines, I'm sure at least there's in, in, in the national newspapers, at least once a week or twice a week, there'll be headlines about delays, ambulance ramping, delays to uh, ambulances arriving on scenes somewhere in the country. Um, so it's almost, you know, it's a very, very regular event. So people trying to access ambulance services in the community um, are impacted because a lot of those ambulances are waiting at the front of hospitals trying to offload their patients. And so, you know, the effects through community are quite, um, as I said, profound. That's really been a recurring theme in some of the discussions I've had with some of the hospital staff. The fact that you've got the acute care parts of the health system, like the ED, the ICU, and even the ambulance service, they're all operating 24-7, but the rest of the health system is still more or less 8am to 5pm. Would you say that this is a significant contributing factor to the overcrowding we're seeing in the ED and in the hospital at large? Yeah, look, it certainly is, and I think we really do see that. And everybody who works in, you know, an emergency department anywhere in the country will understand that um, Sunday evenings and, and Monday days into Tuesdays are the worst days to be in the ED because um, over the weekends, patients get admitted at the same rate that they do every other day of the week. The hospital fills up. Um, and there's no discharges over the weekend. So essentially you go into Sunday with, uh, without any bed capacity and those patients who are admitted on the weekend uh, inevitably will stay into Monday and Tuesday. So you know, that um, has enormous impacts. Many hospitals, for example, you can't get a – there's no um, ultrasound staff on the weekend. So if you've got somebody who's got possible DVT or, or you know, a gallbladder that needs an ultrasound, that service may not be available over the weekend. And so it just immediately adds 24 hours to the length of stay of any patient. So, yeah, so there are, that is a, a massive problem. 
you know, the rest of society in many other uh, industries moves has moved to a seven-day-a-week um, sort of model. I think um, medicine needs to more than most other injuries because the demands are certainly there seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So, you know, that has always been a push from our college, uh, the, uh, the College for Emergency Medicine, because of the fact that we know that that cycle is just, it's like Groundhog Day. You know, every Monday you turn up to the work and every bed in the emergency department is full because there are no beds in the hospital because nobody's gone home over the weekend. So uh, that is a problem. Uh, we also recognise that if you turn up to an emergency department you know, on a weekend needing an acute care and acute admission, then, you know, uh, your, del- your, your morbidity, again, your length of stay in the hospital will be up. Uh, your morbidity and mortality is also has an associated increase as well. So it's well recognised that the, uh, the seven-day-a-week model is something that we've all strived for, but we haven't been able to achieve. So it's certainly evident how even just one small part in sort of the patient's flow through the hospital can have a big impact upon the overall length of stay and then a big impact upon, I guess, the emergency department as a whole. Yeah. Going back to sort of previous uh, articles that you've written, actually, you've previously and very aptly commented on EDs being a metaphorical canary in the coal mine, if you like. Mm. Uh, The solution is not simply um, bigger canaries. But considering the burdens and the barriers that we're seeing, what do you view as being the roadmap out of this problem? Do um, to increased resources and funding have a big role or is it more emphasis on prioritising where this funding is actually going instead? Yeah, look, I, I could, there is, there's a number of different things that we need to tackle to try and alleviate these presses and address the concerns. And, and I suppose the thing is that everybody always turns to, you know, we need more money, need more resources, and there's no doubt you know, if you look at the Australian healthcare system in the overall context of, of, of healthcare compared to other nations, um, Australia is actually a reasonably effective and efficient healthcare system. We, you know, we don't spend anywhere near as much money on uh, healthcare per capita as, as many other countries. I mean, I suppose, you know, we, we can compare countries, for example, like the United States that spends an extraordinary amount of their per capita on, on healthcare and actually has very poor uh, relative um, healthcare outcomes. Uh, the UK um, are a lot more uh, frugal, I think, with their dollar um, and have very good healthcare, healthcare outcomes. And one could argue that that's really because they have a one system. They basically have a, you know, at the equivalent of our public um, hospital or public healthcare system, the NHS, uh, without that, that private healthcare system. So they actually, um, when you look at healthcare outcomes, they're one of the best and costs. They're still ranked as you know one of the best best um, healthcare systems in the world, and so Australia sort of sits in between those. So we have um, we certainly do have a fairly effective, a very effective um, healthcare system, but we do spend a lot of money on healthcare interventions. You know, so one of the things I think that we have been very uh, advocated strongly on is that you know that old adage that prevention is better than cure you know and as an emergency physician the best job that i can actually do is advocate for a healthcare system that prevents the need for people to actually have to access the emergency department uh, for their care because uh, we are preventing healthcare deterioration we're identif- um, identifying problems early and we're actually able to intervene early uh, we have systems uh, set up to manage or prevent you know trauma as well and so you know we we certainly need to do a lot more to try and keep people well within the community but unfortunately you know that's not a very particularly you know i suppose sexy part of healthcare that's not where you know the healthcare dollar 
is necessarily spent because you know we have a system where you know high end intervention seems to be the area where most companies and most systems want to sort of invest their dollar in interventions because interventions is where I suppose where money is made and profits are made. You know the the impact of healthcare prevention I think is really really um, under recognised um, because you're not making money. You're saving money, and a lot of people involved in healthcare, like any industry, um, sort of want to want to make money out of the system. So I think we need to do a hell of a lot more in try in, in healthcare prevention. I, again, saying that, I think Australia has done an incredible job, but there's certainly a lot more that we can do. So areas like you know, again, going back to mental health, I think is a is a huge area that we need to concentrate on. And there's been a lot of resources or a lot of focus lately on mental health and overcrowding and access blocking emergency departments and long-stay mental health patients. So we've been working with various bodies to advocate for better access to mental health care within the community so people don't have to resort to coming to an emergency department for their acute health care crisis, mental health care crisis, and subsequently spend a long time in an emergency department uh, waiting for their care or waiting for an inpatient bed. So, you know, that is one example. Aged care is another really good example where, you know, over... Um, a, a period of time, a lot of the nursing supports and healthcare supports have been moved out of many of our aged care facilities. And now we're seeing a lot of uh, patients from aged care facilities being transferred into emergency departments for falls assessments or, you know, a change in their sort of confusional status and acute delirium. And a lot of these things can probably be managed or should be able to be managed in that aged care um, sector with appropriate nursing inputs and, and medical inputs. But they're just not there. And so we do see, sadly, in that Sunday evening overcrowded emergency departments, out of the six ambulances you might have ramped out the front of the, the ED, you know, four of them inevitably will be patients who have come in from aged care facilities because they haven't been able to access care after hours in, in the place where they live. So, you know, trying to provide those sorts of uh, resources in community will certainly alleviate some of the pressures in emergency departments and in the healthcare, uh, the acute healthcare system. It really is interesting to reflect on sort of how this divergence of resources in the community can help alleviate sort of these overcrowded EDs that we're seeing mm. and how there's this under-recognised impact of prevention because it doesn't necessarily have the same aura about it as, you know, the word intervention. Yeah. Now, there's a, a recent advertising campaign that seeks to educate the public to save triple zero for emergencies and to see either their GP, their pharmacist or nurse on call for non-emergency medical issues. How can the differentiation of which health professional to see for which issue be better communicated to the community? And are the current methods working? Uh, look, I, I think that is really difficult because, you know, if you sell, tell somebody to say, don't go to the emergency department unless it's a healthcare emergency, it's really difficult to ask somebody who has got limited or no real healthcare knowledge to understand that that headache they've got might just be a migraine or that that chest pain that they've got isn't cardiac you know one of the things we see so there's there's the at the same time there's a an awareness campaign about don't go to emergency departments unless it's an emergency there's also campaigns about if you feel a funny feeling in your face or you have slurred speech or you get some chest pain then you should go and get that checked out immediately and so what we're seeing for example in covid at the moment is the issues around astrazeneca and you know the issues around clotting but also with Pfizer, this is around pericarditis and myocarditis. And so there's this awareness campaign and, and this almost fear that um, 
people have that they're going to develop one of these complications. And we're seeing an incredible number of patients who are incredibly well, um, who are coming to emergency departments. And with the, you know, I've had my Pfizer vaccine this morning and then this afternoon I've developed this funny feeling in my chest and could it be myocarditis? And they've got nowhere else to go. They can't go, their GP's not available. And so they come to the emergency department and um, end up getting either, you know, wait for three or four hours to get an assessment and say, look, you're all okay, it's okay to go home or to try and facilitate, I suppose, patient flow. A lot of patients, if they turn up with these symptoms, they're immediately just getting an ECG and some blood tests done. Um, not even seeing the clinician until the blood test results are back. And we say, well, the ECG is normal. Your troponin's okay. You can go home. And so this is, again, a a sort of, you know, raising awareness about certain issues, but not really trying to give a bit more context about what you actually need to look for and not giving people options other than go and seek emergency help. So they're calling us on call, for example, and they say, well, I can't help you need to go to the emergency department or try and get an appointment to see your GP. And the GP says, well, I can't, you know, I don't have any appointments. And if you're worried about that, you need blood tests done straight away. And so go to the emergency department. So the the lack of access to alternatives when people are concerned or they have acute symptoms is, is really problematic. And as I said, in most places, and whether it's in, you know, metropolitan Melbourne or where I work in Echuca, the only place really you can get a healthcare assessment after hours is your emergency department. I guess coming back to COVID, mm. since since COVID has started, we've introduced some really new terms such as suspected COVID protocols and COVID low risk or COVID probable patients. Yep. These obviously require extra precautions and extra PPE usage until the patient is cleared. And even now, everyone's wearing N95s in the hospitals. Do you think that the current COVID precautions add extra long-term burden in an already strained system even when case numbers have been low in the past? Yeah, the, just the term, you know, suspected COVID or SCOVID. You know, we have SCOVID wards, SCOVID EDs. And I think that um, just the whole process and place of trying to negotiate a system with the extra burden of COVID is, is very, very significant. So most of our SCOVID EDs, anybody who comes in with an epidemiological criteria or uh, any respiratory symptoms or, in fact, just a fever of unknown origin, um, will go through the process of going to the, 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 the respiratory part of the ED or the fever side of it or whatever. There's different terminologies that people use. But then the staff will be um, burdened with having to don and off their PPE or they will have been in the PPE for the whole shift. And just COVID clearance, for example, takes hours. And uh, in some places, we've got rapid swabs where we can get people moving through the system very quickly. But, you know, in more of our regional rural places, for example, where, you know, I work in regional Victoria, we want to transfer a patient or or get a swab done quickly. It's almost impossible. You know, the minimum turnaround time is sort of 12 hours. So adjust everything then is delayed. And then there's just into hospital transfers are delayed because of COVID status and trying to clear up COVID status, et cetera. So, you know, you put COVID on top of, or SCOVID, suspected COVID, on, on top of a, an already overburdened healthcare system and, and everything just slows down to a grinding halt. It really just is adding that extra burden on an already strained system. I guess whilst they are still learning, medical students do remain a significant cohort of potential help. Is there a role for medical students and healthcare students in general to play in alleviating this problem? And can students be included as a so-called surge workforce? 
Yeah, look, I think I think there's two things there. One, I've always felt that there's um, an opportunity for medical students to be much more engaged in the healthcare system while they're actually students. Um, I've always had the view, and I've tried to get this sort of implemented in various different guises. You know, there's a lot of opportunities for you know um, part-time work, for example, for medical students working in the hospital systems to to take on roles such as um, you know scribes, for example, in emergency departments. And there've been a number of studies that have been done looking at uh, the impact that that can have on on the efficiency of work for particularly some of our you know senior consultants um, who we do spend a lot of time at computers ordering tests and uh, you know doing medical notes where we can be better off just actually seeing patients making decisions. So things like physician assistant roles, scribes, uh, phlebotomists, clerical roles, all those sorts of things. And I think you know that's um, there's benefits for the healthcare system because you've got people who've actually got some knowledge anyway in health and so would be suited to that environment and medical students you know by their nature are you know enthusiastic learners and motivated and want to learn more about the system they're in so i think there's there's always been an opportunity that i think we're missing um for for medical students to be involved in i think paid employment in some of those roles but also i think in, in certainly in the covid workforce um you know again uh things like vaccination clinics and um you know, swabbing clinics and things like that. There certainly, I think, has been uh, a, a role um, for, for medical students there as well. I There's nothing like working on the job, um, learning on the job. And I think, um, you know, we can look at ways to have medical students more engaged in, you know, the day-to-day workings of the hospitals. I think you get to learn a lot about systems and how the healthcare system actually works. So when you come to be actually working as a clinician in that system, you know, you have a much better understanding of that environment. And I think also if you are working as a medical student in those different roles, you actually get to interact with other parts and other people. You see the impact of being in the emergency department, for example, on a patient and their families because you're looking at things from a completely different perspective. So I think it gives you a, a much more nuanced approach to or a much more holistic approach to to the healthcare system. So I think there is um, some capacity or significant capacity there that we haven't really ever tapped into. And again, going back to the um, just the COVID specifically, um, again, I think, you know, utilisation of medical students in surge capacity workforce to, to take on those roles that we just previously mentioned is um, certainly something we uh, could have or should have taken, in my view, more, more advantage of. It's interesting that you raise the point about scribes. We actually had a really good discussion here in the podcast last year with Professor Katie Walker out of Cabrini about a study she ran on the topic. Yeah. And we also asked her about how she felt about medical students filling some of those roles in an unofficial capacity, and she was definitely supportive of that. Yeah, look, it's been raised at a, number, a couple of different forums, and actually at one point it got last, uh, I think it was two years ago, at the Austin, we were talking about creating positions i think i think there's a difference between being a a medical student and being a scribe i think as a medical student you learn a lot by being a, working in that sort of role as a scribe but but i also think that um in some respects it's almost like the hospital is or the system's sort of getting a little bit of a win by not actually providing uh i, I mean i think they should be doing it providing it as a as an employed role i think if you are uh, going to come in on after hours or weekends to act in, a, as I said, that physician assistant type role, in my view, is it should be a part-time job. I mean, a lot of medical students are out there in the workforce trying to support their, you know, their education and, you know, provide themselves, a, you know, a, a living wage. If we're going to do it, they're going to have to go out and do work anyway. Well, why don't we try and 
make it happen within the healthcare system so you can you know you can learn a hell of a lot while you're on the job and you can make a valuable contribution to the healthcare system um, it, it's to me it just makes sense yeah it's definitely an interesting thought and it could be a really good idea in practice We've had quite an insightful discussion today, and it's been fantastic to hear your thoughts on some of these issues faced by the ED and by the hospital system at large. But before we finish, if there was one piece of advice you would give to all the medical students listening to the podcast, what would it be? Um, I think uh, the one piece of advice, well, there's a number of different bits of advice, but, um, but I think to explore issues around health that are outside just trying to get through the education, the training program. And, and, you know, I know it's incredible. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot to learn. But um, I think there's the the curriculum and the examination and the science of medicine. But I think my view has always been the best doctors or best clinicians are those who understand more than just the science of healthcare. Um, they understand the health system they're working with. They understand the, I suppose, the privilege of working in healthcare, in medicine. I think it's an incredibly, in, you know, it's an amazing job, incredibly privileged that we get to do what we do. And we certainly shouldn't take that privilege for granted. But I think also the best doctors, you know, there's a lot of science in medicine, um, obviously, and we learn all about the science, but I think the best clinicians that I've ever seen are those who understand people and understand that every patient they see is not just a widget in a system of going down a pathway of a, um, you know, you've got appendicitis, we need to take your appendix out. But, you know, every patient is different. They have different needs. In emergency medicine, I think it's, I'm always amazed in in emergency medicine that um, the skills of, you know, clinicians who are able to develop a very trusting relationship with a patient and a family in a very, very short period of time and often reflect on, you know, some of the acute emergencies that we have where people come in with, you know, life-threatening conditions and they immediately, without knowing who we are, put their life in our hands and trust what we're doing and their families do exactly the same thing. So I think it's incredibly important that we look beyond the science, look beyond the curriculum, um, look into the what it really means to be a very, very good doctor and a doctor who actually understands, as I said, all the health systems, the socioeconomic impacts, the social determinants of healthcare outcomes. So you can really become a strong advocate for not only the patient who's in front of you, but but be a strong advocate for the wider community and the needs of the wider community. And COVID, I think, you know, you can save many, many, many lives by actually being an advocate for equity in healthcare. Um, understanding social determinants of healthcare and really being a strong advocate for, for those who people who you know vulnerable patient groups who actually need clinicians to advocate for them so they can access the healthcare that they need. It may be an imperfect system, but I think we can all agree it absolutely is a privilege to be able to be caring for others, um, no matter where we are working. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Judkins. Both we and our listeners really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your own experiences with the public health system and providing insight into the issues that we're all presented with. I'm sure our listeners have found this podcast as engaging and thought-provoking as we have today. So thank you immensely for your time that you've taken and thank you to everyone who has tuned in and who has listened. Bye for now and we'll catch you on a future music podcast.